Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe and another Game On edition of the program today. Call it a World Cup football fiesta. As Portugal, Switzerland, Morocco and Spain battle it out to reach the quarterfinals over in Qatar. The first move World Cup warm-up coming up over the next hour. And from football's frantic pace to the race to outer space. Yes, it's all happening on the show today. Qatar's neighbour, the United Arab Emirates, shooting for the stars and Mars, hoping to harness the benefits of space exploration. We'll hear from the chairwoman of the UAE Space Agency, Her Excellency Sarah Al-Amiri, later on in the programme. And a view of the heavens looking great, but oh heavens, the number on Wall Street. Take a look at this. U.S. stocks thudding back to earth on Monday. All the major U.S. indices falling well over 1%. A cold winter wind chill, we're chilling that Wall Street sentiment. I think we can say that most clearly. As you can see, C for consumer strength. New numbers showing a big jump in U.S. spending on services. That's actually a red flag for the inflation-fighting Federal Reserve, which meets next week to raise rates once again. O, in the meantime, for oil, whipsawed by U.S. recession concerns and uncertainty over that brand new $60 cap her barrel cap on Russian crude. L, in the meantime, for layoffs, Pepsi, the latest big firm to announce hundreds of layoffs as it braces for an economic slowdown. And D, for diminished demand, Tesla stock tumbling 6% on Monday. On reports, it's slowing production in China as lockdowns weigh on sales. Tesla, in the meantime, denying that report. And Monday's news may have been cold. Today's picture also not so bold. U.S. futures remain pretty unsettled, as you can see there. Europe also softer after a mixed handover during the Asia session, though I have to say Taiwan is all the talk today with a monster new investment in the United States. And that is where we begin today's show. The world's most valuable chip company, Taiwan Semiconductor, betting more chips on U.S. growth. The firm is set to announce it will triple its investment in the state of Arizona to some $40 billion. Mark Stewart is here with all the details on that story. Great geographical diversification, I think, for Taiwan Semi, but it's also a big win for the United States in terms of FDI and their supply chain for big companies like Apple, of course, and NVIDIA. Absolutely, Julia. There's certainly a political side to this, and then there is a practical side to this. Let's first talk about the practicality. As you mentioned, this $40 billion investment, it's being touted by the company as one of the largest international direct foreign investments in history. That, again, according to the company. So there's certainly some novelty to this, but there's also some necessity. As we have been discussing now for months, more than a year, there has been this big push in the United States to increase domestic semiconductor production. As we saw during the pandemic, it proved to be a big challenge. Certainly, we use these chips for our laptops, but they also are needed in our smartphones. 
washing machines, automobiles, the list goes on and on. And big companies like Qualcomm, like Apple, all depend on Taiwan Semiconductor to help make these products. And these chips are not something that everyone can necessarily make. They require a finite production style. They require a lot of intellect, a lot of smarts, and Taiwan Semiconductor has been able to refine that process. So for the United States to have a plant here of this scale, of this capacity, of this intellect, it's a very big deal. In addition to the facility itself, this will generate thousands of jobs, uh, at least 10,000 jobs is what the company is saying. And it's something that President Biden will likely discuss when he tours that facility, Julia, later today here in the United States. Yeah, the practicality is so important here. And I think the the statistic that underscores this best, and I think it came from the White House last year, they said that U.S. semiconductor is around 12 percent now of the global total. If you go back a couple of decades, it was 37 percent. And we saw, as you point out, during the pandemic, how vulnerable that made global supply chains. And of course, all the things we use here in the United States or in the West, which leads me to the challenges of the politics in this moment and Taiwan strategically incredibly important globally for the economic growth outlook. And of course, as we know, challenged in terms of uh, relations with China. Right. We have three economic superpowers. We have the United States, we have China and we have Taiwan. And to say that the relationship between all three is complicated would be a big understatement. In fact, in recent months, we heard from President Biden talking about the need to curb China's access of semiconductor and chip making technology uh, from the United States. That is thorny within itself. We also have these complicated relationships about autonomy with Taiwan. So there are several ingredients in this which make this a politically complicated situation. Um, And it's something that perhaps we will hear more from the White House. Not sure exactly, uh, you know, as as far as specifics after that meeting with President Xi and, and President Biden. But you have to we have to acknowledge that the dollars and cents of this, along with this intellectual property, I mean, it sets up the road for a very complicated discussion. It most definitely does, Mark. And um, I I love the illustration of your point about the three superpowers, but prepared to get a Harry style uh, howler from the European Union after that comment. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Mark Stewart. You bet. (laughs) Okay, moving on. And remembering Zhang Zumin, China holding a state funeral for the former leader who died at the age of 96 years old last week. Speaking at the service, President Xi Jinping called for unity after recent protests against COVID restrictions. And Ivan Watson joins us on this now. And and Ivan, I think we can agree it was a show of unity at this funeral with moments of silence across the nation. But this was also a very different leader presiding over a very different China from that which we see today. And of course, that under Xi Jinping. That's right. And his death last week did trigger waves of nostalgia that were appearing in the heavily censored Chinese Internet. Uh, Despite that, I mean, the current government pulled out all the stops to commemorate 
uh, Jiang Zemin to afford him the highest honors. So for days now, there have been ceremonies leading up to, to today's memorial, uh, which was held in, in the Great Hall of the People. Uh, for instance, Xi Jinping was at the airport in Beijing there to greet uh, Jiang Zemin's body uh, last week. He, he was at the hospital, the military hospital on Monday, uh, bidding farewell to uh, Jiang Zemin, who was in, in an open casket there, uh, and uh, greeting his widow and, and embracing his son uh, in, in an unusual kind of sign of affection, really, for, for a Chinese leader. Uh, and then speaking at this uh, memorial after Jiang Zemin was cremated on Monday, uh, Tuesday, in the, in the Great Hall of the People, uh, and just uh, applauding his predecessor, uh, who governed in the 90s and the early aughts for some 10 years, uh, calling him an outstanding leader with high prestige, a great Marxist, a long-tested communist fighter, and calling his death an incalculable loss for the country. As you also pointed out, there was a call for unity, and this coming at a somewhat sensitive time. After last week, we witnessed the the, the biggest burst of, of public, basically, disobedience uh, and frustration with the authorities that we We've seen in a generation in China. This is is people in in nearly 20 cities across the country who uh, protested against the strict zero COVID policies. So there was sensitivity here uh, and concern because there is historical precedent for other communist leaders when they pass for that to kind of set the stage for calls for reform and protest. We have not seen that in connection with Jiang Zemin's passing. Uh, instead, uh, we saw uh, people lining the streets earlier of, of Shanghai, his home city, and then Beijing today uh, paying their respects to uh, their departed leader. Uh, and among the people who had gathered there, this was very interesting, was uh, Xi Jinping's predecessor and the man that Jiang Zemin handed off to, handed power to, uh, Hu Jintao. The last time we really saw him in public was at the end of October at the Communist People's Congress when he was somewhat uncomfortably ushered off stage. He was sitting beside Xi Jinping, and there was this strange moment where he was basically led out of the room a, a bit against his will. Uh, he uh, was filmed paying his respects to Jiang Zemin on Monday. Uh, he had an aide next to him, uh, but we did not see a repeat of that strange moment in an otherwise very scripted uh, ceremony uh, honoring a fallen leader. Julia. Mm. Fascinating to see him there. It's exactly what I was going to ask you, actually. Um, Ivan, thank you so much for that. And actually, to your point, uh, other things to protest about, and that's where we head next. Ivan, thank you. And more changes in China. Beijing's two major airports will no longer require departing passengers to show a negative COVID test to enter their terminals. This comes as a number of Chinese cities begin to ease COVID restrictions. And Selena Wang has all the latest. This is the kind of line Beijingers stand in, outside in the cold to get their COVID tests. A 48-hour test is required to get into most places. But there aren't many places to go. Much of Beijing is still closed down. This is one of the most popular tourist places in the city, but the restaurants are largely closed and the malls are pretty empty. So this McDonald's is still open, but for takeaway only. But even to get takeaway, you've got to prove that you're clear of COVID. And here's how I do it. I open up the health app on my smartphone. I scan the QR code. So it says I've got a green code and I've got a recent COVID test, so I'm good to go. 
This code dictates all of our daily lives in China. Green means good to go. Red means I may have to isolate at home or go to a mass quarantine facility. This allows China to track the movements of virtually all 1.4 billion people in the name of contact tracing. I've got to scan my code to get into a taxi, a public park, a mall, or a coffee shop, even a public bathroom. I ran into a group of delivery people on the street. They've got to do COVID tests every single day to do their jobs. This woman tells me the pandemic has been hard on her. I ask her why. She says it's because she's scared of the virus. Getting COVID in China is unlike anywhere else in the world. You and your close contacts all get sent to a quarantine center. This is a convention center in Beijing that's been turned into a massive quarantine facility with thousands of beds. But some of these facilities in the country, they are in very rundown and unsanitary condition. And then your whole building or community could go into lockdown. I spoke to a man who's been in and out of quarantine six times already just this year. He tells me his whole building of more than 200 families went to a quarantine facility last month because they were considered close contacts. He says he's not scared to get COVID because Omicron is less severe and his whole family has been vaccinated. I approached a few people just released from this mass quarantine center here. I asked if they had tested positive for COVID. Yes, the man nods and says they have recovered. How many days did you spend in there, I asked. Seven days, he said. Unprecedented protests recently erupted across China. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests. They want freedom. Authorities swiftly cracked down on the protesters, but they are finally softening their stance on zero COVID. Some cities are lifting lockdowns, changing COVID testing requirements. Under some conditions, people can now quarantine at home if they have COVID, which is a huge deal. But this country has already built up a whole infrastructure around zero COVID, spending all of its resources on quarantine facilities and COVID testing. So it's going to be a long and slow exit from zero COVID. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. To Ukraine now and new evidence that the country may be raising the stakes in the war with Russia by showing its ability to strike deep inside enemy territory. A Russian official said Tuesday a drone attack took place at an airfield in the Kursk region, setting an oil storage tank on fire. The admission comes one day after the Kremlin accused Ukraine of drone strikes on two Russian bases, one more than 500 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. Kyiv has not claimed responsibility for the attack. And shortly afterwards, Moscow launched a barrage of missiles at Ukraine, hitting targets connected to the energy sector and civilian homes. President Zelensky said Ukraine intercepted most of the missiles. Every Russian missile shot down is concrete proof that terror can be defeated. But we still cannot give complete security to our sky. There were several hits. Unfortunately, there are victims. And in more hopeful signs, we're just learning about a prisoner swap between Ukraine and Russia involving dozens of soldiers on each side. CNN's Will Ripley has the details. Right now, I'm in Sumy, Ukraine, about 25 miles from the Russian border, and we've just received word that a prisoner exchange has taken place. 60 Ukrainians 
coming back from Russian prisons and 60 Russians headed uh, back home at this hour. This is the result of uh, negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians that have been going on for likely quite some time. We expect to learn more details as we head uh, to speak with some of the people who've been involved in this. These prisoner swaps have been uh, one of the few bright spots for the families who have endured so much suffering in this unprovoked, cruel uh, war that is uh, going on uh, some nine months now. Uh, these family members who've been waiting desperately for word about their missing loved ones uh, will be able to actually see them in the coming hours and days, and they'll be able to share their stories of what happened when they were captured and what their life was like uh, as prisoners of war. Meanwhile, there is new uh, concern uh, that the situation may actually be escalating with Ukraine launching apparent drone strikes far into Russian territory. Even though the Ukrainians are not claiming responsibility here, uh, Russia is blaming Ukraine for these massive explosions caused by Soviet technology uh, jet drones that have flown, in one case, just 500 miles outside of Moscow to a strategic military base. That is a situation that we continue to monitor here in northeastern Ukraine. Will Ripley, CNN, Sumi, Ukraine. Okay, and we're going to take a quick break here. But coming up after this, the UAE's mission to be a global leader in space. We'll hear from the woman who's driving the country's efforts later in the show. Plus, we'll talk by now, pay later, and the outlook for financial services with the CEO of fintech giant Klarna. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It is clearly the season for spending, but it also arrives at a difficult time for both the consumers and the global economy. Last year, the buy now, pay later market was worth $132 billion worldwide. The forecasters say it will grow to nearly $4 trillion by 2030. And that's something that fintech giant Klarna, of course, as we've spoken about before, is looking to capitalize on. The Swedish lender may be best known for that, but it's also got plenty of other credit options too and operates with a full banking license in Europe. It's also, though, been a turbulent time across the fintech space with falling valuations, job losses and questions about the path to profitability. And joining us now is Sebastian Szymatkowski. He's the CEO of Klarna. Always fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome. You clearly have a lot going on, as we've discussed in the past during growth phase. But I think it's clear to see as well that the operating environment has changed pretty dramatically too. Talk to me about some of the challenges and, and so how you're tackling it, how you're thinking about this moment. Sure. No, I mean, again, um, we have a, um, or I have a, a little bit of a benefit to the fact that I've been doing this company for 18 years. I've been around yes. for a while, so this is not the first recession that I see. And, um, and um, you know, we already believed in back in January this year that, you know, macro conditions were starting to worsen slightly. So we did some uh, tightening to our underwriting for our longer term credit. And then in May, we did um, further tightening uh, uh, on the underwriting side. And in addition to that, also, we obviously concluded that the investor sentiment had shifted dramatically. Uh, people don't want to lean as much into the future. They want to see profitability now. Fortunately, Klan has been profitable for its first 15 years of existence. So we kind of, we know how to do it. And so we had to make a shift and, and, and unfortunately led also us to making have to make changes to organization. Uh, but right now we are in this path back towards profitability that we hope to accomplish on a month by month basis after summer. And actually, macroeconomical speaking, we're a little bit positively surprised by especially, you know, Cyber uh, Monday and, and Cyber Black Friday and so forth in regards to consumer sentiment seems slightly stronger than, you know, the portraying of it in media, so to speak. So if we look at like what we're actually seeing from spending, it actually looks slightly more positive. 
but obviously still a, a tough macro environment. It's interesting, isn't it? So you, what you're saying is you're seeing less spending overall, but actually it's, it's stronger than, than you anticipated. Well, I uh, to a large degree, is still primarily online transactions. And it, it isn't necessarily comparing apples and bananas at this point in time, because a year ago, we still had COVID restrictions in most of our jurisdictions. And now we don't, right? So we're not really, it's going to take another six months before that cycles out of the system entirely. And we will have really apples and apples to compare. And I think that's also a little bit what you saw in Q3. August was quite slow in e-commerce. But you're starting now to see some fairly good indications in the growth rate. We saw about 10% growth rate on um, you know, uh, Black Friday compared to um, a year ago, which you know is surprisingly strong growth, considering that at that point in time, there were COVID restrictions and there are none today. Yeah, and I want to talk about the point that you made about the underwriting tightening as well, because I do think this is um, is a vital point and it ties to keeping down any form of delinquencies, which I can also see that you're doing. But I'm sort of interested in the rationalization that we've seen across this space. Um, and that's obviously translated to a lowering, a dramatic lowering, let's call it that, of valuations too. How is that tied to the conversations that you're having with investors, the ability perhaps to, to raise money, the focus on growth? And I think that perhaps ties to the point that you made about you know, 15 years of profitability, and you've said you'll get back to that in the latter half or post the summer next year. It's the conversation from investors far more about, hey, talk to me about profits, perhaps, than it, than it ever has been before. For sure. You can definitely see that shift. But I also think here, we took those decisions and kind of bite that, you know, in, in May. And you also have to remember that because we're a regulated bank, we cannot do... Um, you know, liquidation preference and all types of special, you know, equity types. So we only have common equity. So I do think to some degree, the market correction that still was on, on par with public peers like PayPal and others, you know, downturn about 85 percent yes. um, is representative of what's happening in the private markets. But a lot of fintechs out there and other companies right now are able to sustain the illusion of high valuations through, you know, special special equity instruments. But in our case, obviously, yes, there's a tremendous, you know, uh, question, the questions are very different from investors right now. You know, profitability, when it's going to happen, how fast are you going to get there? At the same time, I would say to some degree, right now, no investors are talking to us because they're basically, well, Klarna took the actions that are needed. They have a portfolio of other companies in the tech industry who maybe not, haven't taken the decisions yet and haven't taken the actions necessary in this new world. And I think they seem to be more concerned with them than with us, to be honest. So right now, I'm not hearing that much from, from investors. They seem to be fairly busy with other companies. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a tough one. And I'll just point out to my viewers, we're having a little um, trouble reestablishing a picture with you. So we're showing lots of adverts, which is perhaps good for you, but we're not seeing your face. So if there are um, viewers that are wondering why they can't see you, I'm just um, I'm just making that point clear. Um, you did let 10% of your staff go. And as you said, you sort of did this early on because you saw the warning signs, I think, early on. Um, you've also, as you said, been in this now for almost two decades did you learn anything as a leader about this process? Because it's never easy. I think anyone who's either had to, to let people go or has been let go themselves knows that it can be quite a devastating time, whether, whether you're the leader or the person let go. Did you learn anything? Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, um, it is very difficult. And obviously, I do think, you know, if you're a sane person, you will always, you know, reflect a lot on what you could have done differently and try to improve the next time you do it. Unfortunately, as it is with these things, there isn't there is no good ways to do that. Yeah. There's only 
bad ways and really bad ways, so to speak. So you're trying to do the very best. I think um, in this case also, it, you know, we we uh, um, you know we we tried to do the best that we could. We were also, I think, you know, there was a lot of attention from media to what we were doing, obviously because we were quite early. I do think that you know there's obviously learnings from it, but um, um, you know, I think it's also it's it's it was necessary. Unfortunately, the investor sentiments had changed, and there was simply not support for the level of investments that we were having at that point of time, leaning that much into the future. So, unfortunately, you know that's part of one's job that you have to take the actions that are that are necessary. It's an inevitability about economic slowdown, unfortunately. And to your point, we've we've seen this many times, and it's a it's a cyclical thing. Um, talk to me about the change that you. And the changes that you made in underwriting, because I think there is a perception and it's funny, even on my team this morning, we were talking about this, that um, you see a rise in credit, you see a rise in credit delinquencies and an economic slowdown, irrespective of the kind of underwriting tightening that you make. And yet when I look at what you're doing, you can tell me whether this is a product as a percentage of an increase in sales volume that actually you're maintaining or managing to um, maintain your um, credit losses at what, less than one percent of of your sales volume, mm-hmm. where do you see that going and, and how much tighter are you making these adjustments? So this is one thing that is really poorly understood in, in, in yes. media, I think, to some degree in the global uh, because like there is a fundamental difference to buy now, pay later from a credit card, right? So credit cards underwrites you when you sign up for the credit card. And also, unfortunately, the incentives of a credit card is to make you revolve, to pay as little as possible every month and to build up a balance because that's how they make money. So in general, the overall average balance on the credit card may be three, four thousand dollars. We don't our product doesn't work that way. It's a four, you know, it's a four paying four or paying three. So our balances are only outstanding for up to about two months. And so that means that we turn around our balance sheet 12 times a year. And the average outstanding balance is only $70. So what happens when an economical recession comes like this one, it gives us a very different level of agility. If we change our underwriting models within two months, 50%, Mm. half my balance sheet is underwritten according to the new standards, which may be tighter and tougher in that perspective, right? And that's different. The credit card or a big bank, the durations are so long, when an economical recession hits, they cannot just simply change the composition of their balance sheet because it takes a lot of time for that to translate into the balance sheet, right? So it, there is actually a, a very favorable aspect of the product that we have that allows us that level of agility. And that is why we can react in a better uh, way and, 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 you know, and, and wither a storm like an economical you know, uh, recession and so forth better uh, than your traditional credit card industry. And you also see that in lower losses, like so in general, our losses are about 20, 30% below credit card industry standards, even independent of what kind of economical environment you're in. Yeah, but I think your point about being uh, so dynamic and actually making an adjustment and it feeding through incredibly quickly is a very important one compared with, with credit cards. Do you think the mentality is different, by the way, too, from a consumer? They don't treat buy now, pay later in the same way that they would a credit card, just in terms of, as you pointed out, the volume of spending, but also, hey, I have to pay this back in two weeks or over the next, you know, two weeks, every four weeks. Do you think the mentality is different? I think, you know, one of the best things I recommend for everyone who's interested in these topics is to watch Netflix credit cards explained. And you will see how, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people of the older generation will remember that back in the days when you would have a card from your bank and you would swipe it in a store, there would be press one for debit, press two for credit. So a healthier way of spending 
is to almost take that debit credit decision on a transactional basis. Credit cards didn't like that because you weren't building balances enough. Your monthly statement was too low when you were doing that, which reduced the likelihood of you revolving, which reduced the likelihood of them earning the high interest that they earn on revolving, right? Revolving is also a very confusing concept for a consumer because you're like borrowing against all your spending and you don't really understand when you're going to pay it all back. Installments are clear. They have a fixed term period and so forth. So we're seeing consumers choosing our product because it's about self-discipline. They understand their spending better. They are in more control. And we say, you know, 10 years from now, if less people have credit cards, more people have debit cards, but occasionally use buy now, pay later as an option for specific purchases, that is going to be a healthier environment and healthier form of credit. So we really genuinely believe that this is an, it's still credit, right? So I'm still, I'm not, you know, point is that like, we're fighting fire with fire, right? We're yes. fighting credit with credit. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't like credit, if you don't like credit at all, and you think nobody should borrow for anything, then yes, I'm not going to win the argument with you, right? But but if you if you compare forms of credit, we think this form is better and we have the data to prove it. Yeah, and, and as we've discussed, the challenge over profitability perhaps as well. A temporary challenge. Right. We'll reconvene on this. Um, always great to have you on the show. Thank you for the education. You've kind of given it to me <laughs> before, so me. I apologize. <laughs> but I, um, <laughs> I, I, do, I think it's important to discuss. Um, and it's great to have you on. It's nice to get the chance to talk about these things. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, it's important. Thank you. Um, the CEO of Klarna there, Sebastian, will reconvene. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, heading back into the black. Airlines are set to fly into post-pandemic profits. The question is, though, when? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. After the seismic pandemic shock and, of course, billions of dollars worth of losses, it's now predicted the world's airlines will return to profitability next year. IATA, the International Air Transport Association, sees the industry making a net profit just short of $5 billion in 2023. It will be the first industry-wide profit since 2019. And Paula Monica joins us on this story now. Let's be clear, still billions of dollars worth of losses this year. But this is far quicker a recovery, actually, than I think anyone thought at the beginning of the pandemic. And welcome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think it is a faster recovery than many were anticipating. But of course, keep in mind, these are still, Julia, just projections and also $4.7 billion profit for the global airline industry is a lot smaller than those pre-pandemic 2019 levels. And also the margins are razor thin. I mean, it's hardly something to celebrate when the IATA is also predicting that revenue will be nearly $780 billion next year, which would be up from this year as well. But a $4.7 billion profit on revenues that large, do the math. We're talking about margins less than 1%, not exactly a profitable business. Wow. I mean, the margin of error there, huge. And I was just looking at their uh, predicted losses for this year, somewhere between $6.9 billion and $9.7 billion. So, wow, they've got a lot to uh, catch up from as well over the past few years. What about the risks to the outlook? We're talking economic slowdown. Surely a lot of this depends on what we're sort of seeing, at least at the initial stages of reopening in, in China. Critical exactly. surely to the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to hope that China is a market where travelers will be more free to uh, you know, go places despite some of those COVID lockdowns. Will people be willing to go to China in light of the outbreak there? That is a big concern. But I think, Julia, the other issues, 
you obviously have oil prices, which have been in mm. flux. You know, that is something inflation could impact uh, this outlook. And again, we are talking about the balance between pent up demand. There are a lot of us that want to travel again. We're tired of not going anywhere for a couple of years. But by the same token, everyone is talking about a recession and how bad is it going to be if you do wind up having an economic downturn, especially in the United States, are consumers really going to be going to Disney World and Disneyland? I'm not so sure. Yeah, lots of pent-up demand, but do the budgets uh, allow for the, the travel that people would like to do? We shall see. Paul, thank you so much for that. Paul and Monica there. Okay, after the break, speaking of travel, we're off into space. The latest on the Artemis moon mission and why the UAE is also reaching for the stars. We'll hear from the head of its very own space agency next. Welcome back to First Move. NASA's unmanned Artemis moon mission is one step closer to coming home. The Orion spacecraft successfully fired its main engine, setting it on a course back to Earth. And if all goes well, Orion will splash down in the Pacific on Sunday. Artemis 2 is slated to repeat the mission in 2024, this time, of course, with humans, not a plush Snoopy toy, on board. And in the meantime, the United Arab Emirates also has its sights on the moon with an upcoming mission to land a vehicle on the lunar surface carried on board a SpaceX rocket. The UAE, which is home to five space research and development centers, is also making new discoveries about Mars. Its HOPE spacecraft in orbit above the Martian surface is sending back data about the red planet's atmosphere. And two, this week, Abu Dhabi hosts an international space debate attended by the likes of NASA, India and China, exploring the challenges that lie ahead. Put it all together and you can see the Emirates' commitment to space. And Her Excellency Sarah Al-Amiri is the UAE Minister of State for Public Education and Advanced Technology and the chair of the UAE Space Agency. Your Excellency, welcome to the show. That is a pretty cool job title. Just start by explaining your vision for the space industry in the UAE and what the role of this debate that you've held over the last two days is. Thank you and a very good morning to everyone. Uh, the last two days has seen us uh, discussing and having dialogue with regards to space, how we continue to expand our efforts in development, and that's a global effort, how we need to maintain um, space free of debris, how we need to continue to collaborate as spacefaring nations, and how that all ties together is bringing in people from various backgrounds. Um, space agencies usually speak to each other. We sometimes include commercial space, but rarely do we bring in space commands. Rarely do we bring in regulators and policymakers and also diplomats. Uh, space is ever becoming an area that needs to be discussed and dialogue needs to be pushed forward on the global sphere so that we can actually harness space for humanity rather than making it the next front for destruction. It's such an important point. Uh, I actually wasn't going to go there, but that, that you've made the point. I think it's critically important. I think competition in this space and all forms of technology is a good thing. I think there is a danger, perhaps, that the space race gets taken too far. Do you see the UAE in that regard as some kind of bridge between what was the traditional space powers, the United States and, and Russia, of course, 
and, and those now that are all getting on board, and I include China in this, because there clearly is a danger perhaps for, for conflict in the future beyond that competition. If we don't have a form of dialogue um, that supports the growth of the space sector, uh, and if we continue taking the trajectory that we've taken in political dialogue and, and politicizing all other facets of uh, potential cooperation, we will reach to the point that you've just mentioned. What we're pushing for is ensuring that emerging space nations, such as the United Arab Emirates, and existing space nations who have been doing this for decades upon decades and have pioneered, same thing with, with companies. So the companies that have, again, been doing this for decades upon decades, and then the new entrants into the space field. We need to start working together. We need to draft a more modern mechanism of working together and ensuring that waste does not dominate the space sector and waste does not stop us from being able to access space. You know, it's fascinating. I mentioned uh, your moon mission and the Emirates lunar mission aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. It was, I believe, scheduled for November. And, and perhaps you can give us some greater sense of, of the date. But I think key to your point about collapsing the cost and reducing waste has been the importance of the private sector to get nations like the United States, but others once again up to speed and out there, whether it's low Earth orbit or, or beyond. How important is the private sector in the UAE? And, and what are you and the government doing there perhaps to, I don't know, one day create your own kind of SpaceX and, and push the frontiers of space forwards? So the private sector now globally is expanding the realm where emerging space nations are able to access, for example, the surface of the moon. Uh, what we're looking at is developing and transferring on a lot of the know-how and experience that has been built from our mission to Mars and has been built from our Earth observation missions into the private sector. We're actually encouraging our engineers and our scientists and our researchers and also the financial um, um, units as well to start investing in space, to transfer on their capabilities there. And we're supporting them with contracts. We have a space fund that has been announced this year we have two major projects that we are guaranteeing offtake agreements uh, to those young companies that are establishing in the sector. Of course, we will never do this um, in silo. The UAE will continue to play uh, as a global player, as will our private sector. And we continue to ensure that, the, that we are responsible uh, in, our, in our access to space. And we are responsible in our global dialogue to ensure that there's transparency and cooperation to ensure that we're creating the necessary impact and outcomes in terms, of, uh, uh, in terms of development and to ensure that global dialogue and global legislation is moving forward. I think something that's interesting to point out that we saw across the debate and we all agreed on, and this is, there were emerging nations here, we had, uh, more, than, we had more than 50 countries representative, uh, over 40 space agencies wow. with space commands. We all agreed that legislation that has been drafted in the 60s is no longer relevant, <laughs> that we all have a different mechanism that we need to uh, start having a dialogue in, that space has no space, pun intended, in global politics, and that we need to ensure that we're collaborating differently and that we're pushing and striving forward. And uh, taking on a stance of what we are traditionally uh, known in terms of having dialogue, um, and I, 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 I've given an analogy to uh, where we've reached in, uh, in climate dialogue. 
will not get us to where we want to be in space. We need to create new mechanisms, uh, new regulatory mechanisms, new sense of internal accountability from the private sector's perspective and a new global governance mechanism that maybe for once perhaps we all agree on certain aspects and rules of the road of exploring space. I love your ambition. <laughs> it does It does feel like that at this stage, given uh, the reference that you made to climate in particular. We clearly have to move um, um, quicker um, above anything else, I think, where, where space is concerned. You know, the challenge, I think, for a lot of people watching this will be, never mind getting to the moon, never mind getting to Mars. We have huge problems on this planet. Climate's a great example that, that need fixing. And I think helping our citizens understand the benefits, the economic benefits, perhaps beyond anything else of space exploration, the data that you're now pulling, for example, from, from, from the Mars mission. Um, have you quantified the economic benefits of this so that, that the people can understand? And do you think that's also something that, that nations have to consider for those that perhaps are saying, why, when we have so many other problems to solve? Let's target needs first before we target the economic impacts of the return investment. From a needs perspective, if I take the climate, uh, climate change and the weather systems and the dynamics that we're now seeing, one of the only ways that we can study that over time is using satellites. And those satellites uh, typically operate in low Earth orbit around Earth. That is the most congested part of Earth. If we talk about communications and expanding our communications capabilities, we see companies now utilizing low-Earth orbit. Starlink is an example uh, of that. So that's, that's how we just connect with each other. These are all fundamental needs. They do create economic benefit, but they are making our lives better, and they're impacting our lives positively. If we do not address the, the issues that we currently have in low-Earth orbit, and just to contextualize it, we actually within a decade, we'll have a real problem at, in low-Earth orbit. It mm. might lead to a point where spacecrafts mm. might collide with each other, cause more debris, um, render that area of space not, access, not accessible, which means the spacecrafts, the satellites that we rely on for our data, for our information, for our connectivity, will no longer be able to safely operate. And that's going to be a world that we don't want to live in. And that's why I always liken this to the climate agenda. Right now, it's too late to solve the climate change, climate change issue. If we don't solve the space issue within the next three years and have the mechanism to be able to deal with debris, the mechanism to agree that we will not cause any conflict or even scatter it and sustainably access space, only then will we be able to uh, realize the full potential of that. And the time to act is now. We cannot wait uh, a year from now. We cannot wait for a decade when the problem is staring us in the face. Yeah. Um, and that's why one of the call yeah. of actions that we all had during the, the Abu Dhabi space debate is the time to act is now. And we've all taken it forward to be able to have it on our national agendas and on our international agenda. Absolutely. We're playing catch up on climate and this is something that we can tackle over the next few years and not have the problem that you're talking about in the uh, in the next 10. Um, vitally important. You know, I read a great profile on time that you loved space from being a 12 year old. And I I wanted to ask you what it feels like to be in this position today, because our viewers will see that you're clearly young and in a position of great power. Um, 
but we shall reconvene, please, Your Excellency, and we'll have that conversation because you're certainly flying the flag, I think, for women in science too. Um, a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you, Her Excellency there. Sarah Likewise, Arnier, thank you. Chair of the UAE Space Agency. We'll speak soon, please. Okay, coming up, the final matches for the round of 16 at the World Cup will take you to Qatar for today's action. That's next. Welcome back. And U.S. stocks are up and running after the worst day for tech in weeks. But we're moving from the Wall Street Bears to football fans' prayers. Two big last 16 matches in the World Cup today. The face-off between Morocco and Spain. And later today, it's Portugal versus Switzerland. Expect to see some players with tired limbs. But what about stock market wins? Time now for our ongoing feature, the Chatterley Cup. A look at which football giants' financial markets have come out on top this year. And today's Chatterley contenders, we can start with Morocco and Spain. Spanish stocks edging it out. As you can see, they're down 4% so far this year to Morocco's down 16%. And as for Portugal versus Switzerland, Portugal's PSI 20 up over 5% this year. The SMI, however, a serious Swiss miss. That's down 13%. And in the Chatterley Cup challenge yesterday, market underperformers Croatia topped Japan, while Brazil and its buoyant Bavesta beat out stock laggard South Korea. Amanda Davies joins us from Doha. The Chatterley Cup continues, Amanda. The question is, who's going to win today? <laughs> well, Julia, it's been fascinating it this fast. round of matches. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating. After all those shocks that we had in the group stage matches that we were talking about, the thrills and the spills, actually, when it's come to this round of 16, it's the traditional footballing heavyweights who've made it through so far. But Morocco and Switzerland hoping to change that one today. Morocco, just in about five minutes' time, uh, about to, to kick off their match against Spain. I can see the players lining up for the national anthems. Uh, it's a match that the Moroccan coach, Walid Regragui, has described as the biggest in his country's footballing history. Uh, looking to book a place in the quarterfinal of a World Cup for the first time. And they're not just waving the flag for the African countries here at this tournament, the last African team still standing, but also for the Arab nations. And we know that this has been such a tournament, hoping to raise the profile and the enthusiasm, the support for football in this region. They had such a troubled build-up to this tournament, having uh, changed their coach with just a couple of months to go, but then really made such an impact against Belgium and Croatia, finishing above them in their group. So Spain can take nothing at all for granted in this one. Their coach, Luis Enriquez, made cha five changes from the side that were beaten by Japan in their last match. Uh, that performance he described from his side as a B+. Plus. And he is all too aware of what happened when these two sides met at the World Cup in Russia four years ago. They've got a late, late equaliser to earn a point. So he's made sure his team have been practising their penalties ahead of this one. Wow, what an exciting day. I saw your interview earlier, the biggest game in Morocco sporting history. That's how it was described. We love it. We shall see. Amanda, see you tomorrow. Have a fun rest of day. Amanda Davis there. Thank you. And that's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next. Stay with CNN.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.